0: Again, I assure those feminine pioneers who clamour for their rights that above everything else they should demand an equality of pockets. If granted, it would probably have such an amazing effect on women's intellects that they would get suffrage the very next thing. In this episode of our summer series, which I'm affectionately calling Here's One I Prepared Earlier, we will be hearing about the history of the pocket, and opening a pocket full of trouble in the war between the sexes along the way. Welcome to Ratbags and Roustabouts, the place where we hear those extraordinary stories of ordinary people who never made it to the history books. Or today, it's more that we will hear about how the humble pocket was also used as a weapon in the fight for women's rights. As ever, I'm your host, Marion Langford. You know, I remember when my kids were just babies. I mean, they couldn't even sit up. Helpless little cutie pies who relied on me to do everything for them. And their clothes had pockets. And I'm their mum and I'm out there, out and about with nowhere to put anything myself because I'm a girl and have zero pockets. I think I had one pair of pants that had these piddly little pockets that I'd try to wear so that I could at least keep my house keys handy. But geez Louise, it was infuriating. In fact, there was an incident not that many years ago when I was trying to wrangle the kids into the bath, and due to the inadequately shallow pockets on my trousers, my phone slipped out of the pocket, fell into the toilet while I was bending down to wrestle with a small human. I was really not happy about that one. So pockets and patriarchy and gender discrimination based on the patriarchal power play of pockets is a hot topic issue in our house. In fact, I realised I may have talked about this particular issue a little bit too much when my young son told me the other day that it's just so unfair that women's clothes don't have pockets, or if they do, they're only tiny pockets, while men get these deep gorge like things to hold all manner of possessions. And look, he wasn't wrong. And now this is getting to be a bit of an old joke that women always moan about not having pockets and are delighted to find any item of clothing that has pockets, and men say to them, we'll buy clothes with pockets in them then. And then it turns into a whole debate of fashion versus function, and I am not here today to get into that at all. But what I will tell you is that this is a divide between the sexes that has been hundreds of years in the making. Yes, I may be poking the hornet's nest, but what the hell? Let's stir up some trouble and see what's hidden inside the history of pockets. Now, I will admit that when I started researching this topic, I was under the impression that the pocket debate began during the suffragette movement in the early 1900s. I believed, wrongly as it turned out, That pockets were removed from women's dresses at that time because they were using their pockets to hide flyers and details of secret meetings as they worked to get the vote. In reality, the issue of pockets in women's clothes began centuries before. In fact, to look into it, we have to start all the way back in the 1600s, because it was around then that men began having pockets sewn into the lining of their clothes. Women, meanwhile, instead had pockets as a separate item of clothing, which were tied around their waist under their skirt. Then there were openings in the side of the skirt. So to access their pocket, they had to kind of do this awkward maneuver where they had to find the opening in their skirt, put their hand in and find the pocket then find the object that they wanted and, and so on. It was very complicated. You get my drift. It would have been seriously annoying. That went on for a century or two. So we'll now fast forward to the 1790s and into the start of the 1800s when fashion changed quite significantly for both men and women. This is Regency England, Jane Austen kind of era, Mr Darcy, Elizabeth Bennet. Women's silhouette had become more streamlined. Dresses now had empire waists, which is basically a seam under the bust and no real defined waist waist and the skirts were less voluminous, so it was now impossible to have a pocket tied underneath as the lumps and bumps could be seen through your skirt. Instead, women had to carry a purse. This is the beginnings of the modern-day handbag. Men, meanwhile, were still wearing breeches that came to just under the knee, but not for long. In the 1790s, a fashion began in France for long trousers for men. It jumped the channel during the Napoleonic Wars, and by the 1820s, long trousers were firmly entrenched in England. How come women just got a different style of skirt, but men got trousers? In 1879, in his Cyclopaedia of Costume, James Robinson Planche described the fight for who would wear the trousers as a war akin to North versus South, Protestant versus Catholic, or Celt versus Anglo-Saxon it was obviously a battle that women lost. But really, the changes that we saw in fashion at the start of the 1800s basically meant that for men, their pockets got bigger and better, while women lost theirs entirely. Now look, women did get back one or two pockets as skirts became bigger again, but they were still hard to access in the miles of fabric and didn't hold all that much. Meanwhile, the men's suit, which is still fashionable today, it got a total of 16 or 17 pockets. Men could secrete items literally all over their body, leaving their hands free. Women could not. But why would women need to? They had no business to concern themselves with. They had men to worry about things for them. This was the attitude at the time – Here's an article that appeared on the subject of women's suffrage in the Bulletin in 1900. "'Why should women have separate representation? The majority of the members of every parliament in the civilised world are married men. It is to their interest and welfare to safeguard the best interests and welfare of all women. No act affecting anything human can exclude women.' Womanhood suffrage is a step towards the accomplishment of absolute sexual licence. Now that's in an Australian publication which was written after some of the states had already given women the vote. When it came to women's suffrage, Australia was a bit more fashion forward than Britain. Here, women first got the vote in South Australia in 1894, then Western Australia in 1899, New South Wales in 1902, Tasmania in 1903, Queensland in 1905 and Victoria in 1908. The Commonwealth gave women the right to vote and to stand in federal elections in 1902. Meanwhile, women in England didn't get the vote until 1918, the year World War I ended, and even then it was done only in part and reluctantly. They didn't actually get the same voting rights as men, until 1928. And the suffrage movement leading up to getting the vote, well, honestly, they went through hell to get to that point. They viewed getting women's suffrage as a war. They used propaganda, they used petitions, they used violence. It was a battle that was waged for decades, but throughout The pocket was a silent co-conspirator, harbouring all manner of things to help the cause, including secret pamphlets, eggs to throw, whips, matches and even guns. It was the politician and liberalist John Stuart Mill who first proposed the idea to the British Parliament of women getting the vote when he presented a petition with an impressive 21,557 signatures on it In 1866, that is 52 years before the British Parliament finally conceded and 62 years before women got the same voting rights as men. Women's suffrage groups began to form. In 1867, there was the National Society for Women's Suffrage. In 1897, it united with another group to form the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies under the leadership of Millicent Fawcett, who led the group for 20 years. Then there were other suffrage movements and groups in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. But by 1906, the suffrage movement was largely being led by the Women's Social and Political Union, known as the WSPU, under the leadership of Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughters Christabel and Sylvia. The suffragette movement started kind of how any campaign begins – The groups lobbied the government, convincing MPs to put forward private members' bills. But while these meant the subject of women's suffrage was debated in Parliament, they all failed to get any solid results. In fact, from the first time John Stuart Mill brought his petition in 1866 until 1904, there were a total of 16 private members' bills brought before Parliament about women's suffrage. I guess you could describe the movement at this point as peaceful persuasion. Things changed, though, when the WSPU took the reins. Under Emmeline Pankhurst's direction, women's suffrage became a lot more visual. They held parades and publicity campaigns, drumming up support and making enemies. At this point, there was actually a majority of MPs in Parliament who supported women's suffrage, but the Liberal government of the day wouldn't allow a vote to be held to decide the matter. The movement still wasn't getting a lot of success. Then, in October 1905, Christabel Pankhurst and Annie Kenney went to a Liberal Party meeting in Manchester where they asked if the party planned to give women the vote. They were thrown out of the meeting and arrested for obstruction and for spitting on a police officer. This began a new militancy in the movement. Under the motto, deeds not words, suffragettes started to show the world how angry they were and how seriously they took their campaign for equal voting rights. WSPU members would smash windows, throw stones and eggs They would shout in court, shout during speeches. They led a campaign of arson setting fire to unoccupied churches and houses using letter bombs and hunger strikes. In a newspaper report from 1909, there's a story about Winston Churchill being assaulted by a woman in Bristol. The headline on the article is Silly Suffragettes and tells of a woman hitting Churchill with a dog whip across his face. Churchill grappled and struggled with the woman before wrenching the whip off her and putting it, of course, in his pocket, because men have pockets. In 1914, another article talks about Ballymenock House near Belfast being burnt down by suffragettes as well as an unsuccessful arson attempt on a church at Lanark. There was a suffragette group that attacked a by-election with acid, blinding one person and burning another. Then, of course, there's the famous incident at the 1913 Epsom Derby where suffragette Emily Davison ran onto the track during the race and was killed by the king's horse. This period was a lot more violent, I think, than people realise. At least five people died during these attacks, with around 24 injured. And during this more militant time of the campaign, the suffragettes needed more functional clothing – a suit of armour or a uniform, if you like. They already had colours for their uniform, purple for loyalty, white for purity and green for hope. Now they needed to be able to use their hands to run and to hide weapons. Handbags only got in the way the suffragettes needed pockets. British actress and suffragist Kate Fry wrote a diary entry which described her running into an active member of the WSPU while out having coffee one day. "'I went to Lyons and had a coffee and a sandwich. "'Who should I happen to sit next to but Miss Ada Moore "'and two ladies ready for the fray?' I wonder I wasn't arrested as one, for soon I realised that I was dressed for the part to the life. A long ulster coat, light hat and veil with the correct costume. No bag, purse, umbrella or any extra. I only had enough money to get home in my coat pocket. The latch key was slung around my neck. It was awfully exciting. One felt like a red revolutionist. In the US, they even created what was sold as the suffragette suit. This had cleverly concealed pockets, around six in total. But equally, as women fought for freedom to take part in elections, so too they began to think that they should have other freedoms as well. There was the rational dress movement, where practicalities were preferred over fashion. Women began to unshackle themselves from the restrictive Victorian clothing. Undergarments became looser and lighter, women wore divided skirts, kind of like big culottes, while cycling, and the unnatural shape of the Victorian era with corsets to form tiny waists and bustles was shunned, with a more natural shape preferred. Trousers were worn by some women, but that was still rare. The WSPU used colour and fashion to give it legitimacy and visual power, They would hold huge parades in Hyde Park in London where everyone was dressed in beautiful white gowns with touches of purple and green. The sea of white made a striking visual impact and the elegance of the women shot down any attacks from the men in power that these were not proper women and I use that term in air quotes because of their manner of dress. But while the men had won the battle of the trousers, the battle of the pockets was still being waged And they knew it too. They knew the confidence, the self-assuredness, the power that was contained in those tiny spaces of nothingness sewn into their suits. This was published in 1907, telling women that they should forget wanting the vote, all they really needed was pockets to solve all their problems. Again, I assure those feminine pioneers who clamour for their rights that above everything else they should demand an equality of pockets. If granted, it would probably have such an amazing effect on women's intellects that they would get suffrage the very next thing. Just consider, the most ordinary kind of man has at least 16 pockets, while a woman of transcendent intellect generally has none, or if she has one, it is where she can't get at it. Now try to imagine a man doing his errands with a purse, handkerchief, and shopping list in one hand, the tail of his skirt in the other, his umbrella under one arm, meanwhile making an effort to keep his head clear for business problems, and at the same time, keeping a wary eye out for motors. He couldn't do it. There really is no doubt that man owes his superiority to women entirely to his pockets. If the worthy ladies who have so much enthusiasm and who will interrupt our great orators while they are busy being eloquent would only demand a law requiring every woman to have 16 pockets, what a splendid service they would do to their bothered sex. When World War I was declared, Emmeline Pankhurst agreed to stop the militant behaviour as all endeavours needed to go into the war effort – During the war, though, women had to take on many of the roles previously done by the men, and they proved what they were truly capable of. On January 10, 1918, finally women over the age of 30 who met minimum property requirements were given the right to vote in the UK. This gave about 8.5 million women the vote. It's debatable just how much the decision was influenced by the work of the suffragettes. To be honest, it partly happened at this point because the Pollies were pleased that the violence had largely stopped during the war. But even then, the decision to give women the vote had less to do with the rights of women and more to do with the rights of men, returning soldiers in fact. The government realised that many of the returning soldiers would not have the right to vote because to qualify to vote, you had to meet minimum property requirements, which most of them more than likely wouldn't. So this law was more about making voting for men equal, and they just tacked on the women, maybe to stop the suffragettes from starting up their militancy again. But they couldn't give women the same voting rights as men at this point because Doing that would suddenly see women having the majority of the vote in the country. At the end of the war, there were about 2 million more women than men in the UK. In fact, it would take another 10 years before it was put into law that all women in Britain over the age of 21 could vote. And so finally, in 1928, women and men in Britain had equal voting rights. But who had won the battle of the pockets? Well, let's just add up the pockets in my wardrobe and my husband's wardrobe and see. Yep, women got the vote, they eventually got the trousers, but they still haven't got the pockets. Now, yes, I know this episode, again, was a little different to normal, but I hope you enjoyed it anyway. I will be back in two weeks' time with regular programming, you'll be pleased to hear after my Christmas New Year's break. Meanwhile, don't forget you can check out the website, ratbagsandroustabouts.com, where you can listen to all the past episodes and read the show notes of the past episodes and read the extra little nuggets that I put on every time I put out a show. And you can also follow the podcast on Instagram. Anyway, I will see you again in two weeks' time where you can hear more stories about those commoners muck, ratbags and roustabouts from our past who still have extraordinary tales to tell.